All right. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of, myriads of thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Grant. Hey, good morning. I am Josh, one of the pastors here, and thank you guys for being with, with us. Thank you for uh, enduring the, uh, the heat and the humidity. Uh, i got to just give a disclaimer uh, up front. Some of you guys uh, are friends with my wife Tracy on social media, and she uh, posted a quote from uh, a friend of ours who we used to serve in ministry with, and she posted this quote last week, something to the effect of like, what if we didn't have the cushioned chairs and the air conditioning and all that stuff? Uh, would the word of God still be enough to bring us together? And I got to tell you, at that moment, it was hypothetical. Okay, so we didn't know that the AC was going to be out. That wasn't some kind of tricky way to get you here. And so, but thank you guys so much for uh, for being here today. Thank you for. Um, enduring the heat and uh, looking into the Word of God with us. Um, we are going to be continuing our series today on the topic of spiritual formation. Asking the question, how do we practice the way of Jesus together for the life of the world? And specifically, over these four weeks, we're looking at how we engage with God through the Scriptures. As Christians, we believe that God has spoken. We believe that God has revealed Himself to us in His Word. That's what Jesus believed. That's what the people of God all throughout history believed. That's what we here at Soma Church believe. That's what we build our lives and our church on. And I want, I want to take a moment and just recognize up front that that might seem strange to some of you. 
Like we realize, I, I fully realize, that there is something that seems a little strange about modern 21st century people building their lives on a book that's 2,000 years old. And so maybe you've got questions about that. Maybe you've got doubts about that. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus and you're exploring Christianity. Maybe you are a follower of Jesus and you're still wrestling. You're wrestling with some of these doubts and some of these questions. And, and up front, we want to make ourselves available if, if you're working through some of those questions or some of those doubts. There are a lot of good reasons to believe that God has spoken in the Bible. There are a lot of good reasons that we as followers of Jesus build our lives on the scriptures. But here's the clincher for me. When I look at the world, when I look at the beauty of the world and the ugliness of the world, when I look at the blessings of human existence, but also the pain and the suffering and the heartache of human existence, there is only one story that makes sense of all that for me. And it's the story of the scriptures. It's the story that God has revealed in his son, Jesus Christ, and in the word that he has given us. See, the fact is, everyone has a story. Everyone has a story. And I don't just mean your own individual story. I don't just mean your own biography or the story of your life. I mean that every person has some big story, some narrative that makes sense out of life. And we're shaped by this story. And the thing is, most of the time, we don't even know that we're being shaped by this story, but we are being shaped by some vision of who we are and what the world is all about. You log on to Instagram, see the pictures of the beautiful people in the beautiful places, and you think, that's the good life. That's the truly human life. That's the life I've been created for. You see your neighbor's new Tesla. Your coworker gets a promotion. Your friend gets engaged. That ad pops up in your newsfeed, and you think, that's what I need. That's what I'm made for. That's what will make me fully alive. See, you are always hearing a story, sometimes multiple stories. You are always hearing a narrative of what the world is all about and, by extension, what you are all about. Everyone lives by faith in some story about themselves and the world. A story that answers the big questions. Who are we? Where are we? What's wrong with the world? How can the world be made right? Just one example. This is why we see such fragmentation in our society today. This is why we are so polarized along political lines today. This is why we see such incendiary rhetoric. This is why we see people vilifying and demonizing people who disagree with them. Because we believe a certain narrative about the world. And what that narrative says is that my tribe has it right. We've got, the, we, we've got the, the right ideas about the world. And these people over here, they're the problem. And so the solution is to silence and marginalize and ostracize those people and get my way by means of political might. And that is just one example. We could spend all morning talking about these false narratives that shape our way of thinking and our way of being in the world. But today what I want to do is I want to look at the true story of the world. That's what we believe the Bible is. The Bible is the true story of the world. And it's not just a story that we read. It's the story that reads us. Because this isn't just a story about some group of people out there. It's the story of us. It's the story of the world. It's the story of the God who made us and who loves us and who refuses to give up on us. The Bible is what, what Leslie Newbegin calls cosmic history. Cosmic 
history. It is the true story of the universe. Leslie Newbegin was a, a missionary in India, and he talks about this conversation that he had. He was having a conversation with a friend of his who was a, a Hindu religious scholar. And, he, and he's in the midst of this conversation, and his friend says this to him. He says, you, you missionaries, you Christians, you're always selling the Bible so short. You're always trimming it down. You, you talk about the Bible like it's just some other religious book. He's like, this is India. We have tons of religious books here in India. That is not what the Bible is. The Bible's different. The Bible is unique because the Bible claims to lay out the story of humanity and the story of the world. That's what you get when you come to the Bible. It is the true story of the world. And as those who follow Jesus, it is the story that defines us. It's the story that defined Jesus. You realize that? Jesus is the meaning of the Bible. He's the point of the Bible. But also, as a human being, Jesus saw God and the world and humanity and his own identity in light of the Bible. And so if we want to learn to practice the way of Jesus, we have to learn to do that as well. If we want to learn to practice the way of Jesus together for the life of the world, then it means that the story of God has to begin to define us individually and as a community. We just read this fascinating passage, this vision, Revelation chapter 5. The Apostle John, here's what's happening in, the, in Revelation 5. The Apostle John is living in exile, possibly even in a prison on the island of Patmos. And, and all the rest of Jesus' apostles have been executed. Every one of them. They have been fed to the lions. They have been burned alive. They have been crucified for their faith in Jesus. And John is the last one left. And he is an old man, probably almost 90 years old at this point, who has gone on the run for his life and is living in exile on this island when he has this vision. And God gives him this vision, and he records this vision, and he sends it to all these churches around what's today modern-day Turkey. Because these churches are experiencing persecution. They're experiencing ostracism and prison and even death because they're followers of Jesus. And in moments like that, in moments of darkness and suffering, we start to question, don't we? We start to question and doubt, what's God doing in the world? Like most of us have never faced prison time for our faith, but we still question, God, what are you doing? I know I do. We look at the suffering all around us. Injustice and racism. Children dying of malnutrition, poverty, human trafficking, this fragmented society that feels like it is tearing apart at the seams. We look at our own lives, see our marriages falling apart, the betrayal of people who we thought were our closest friends. We lose our jobs, we lose our loved ones. In spite of all our advances in medicine and neurobiology, we still experience near-epidemic rates of depression and anxiety in our society. For many of us, we just lie awake at night and just sometimes all we can do is pray and just say, God, what in the world is going on? That's why I love Revelation 5. That's why I love the whole story of the Bible, because that's what the Bible shows us. It shows us what God is doing in the world. That doesn't mean that it answers all of our questions, but it does tell us the big story of the world, the big story of humanity, and it shows us as human beings living in God's world how we fit in the midst of it. The author rolls back the curtain. He shows you what the story is really all about. He shows you the point of the human story and, by extension, the point of your story. A lot of people think uh, the book of Revelation is all about the future with the charts and all the movies and all that kind of stuff. And that, that is partly true. 
But the original phrase that, that the Apostle John uses for this, the original uh, name for the revelation is the apocalypse. And an apocalypse is literally an unveiling. So it's a symbolic story that peels back the curtain and shows you ultimate reality. If you've seen the, the movie The Matrix, the apocalypse is the red pill. It's the red pill that wakes you up from your slumber and shows you what's really happening in the world. And God rolls back the curtain and he shows this vision to his people so that his people will have hope. In the midst of a world that looks like it's falling apart, in the midst of lives that look like they're falling apart, when it looks like evil is winning, God shows that he is doing something behind the scenes and that one day he will set all things right and he will make all things new. That's the whole point of the scroll in Revelation 5. So Revelation 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. There's this vision, God sitting on the throne, God reigning in heaven, and God sends out a decree, sends out a proclamation, just like a king would do in the ancient world. He sends out this scroll with a decree. The scroll is God's purposes. It's God's plan to establish his kingdom, to establish justice and righteousness and flourishing on the earth. But there's a problem. The scroll is sealed, and no one can open the scroll. No one is worthy to open the scroll and establish God's kingdom and God's purposes on earth. No one is worthy to bring about God's beautiful plan for the world and his beautiful plan for human beings. John is undone. He begins to weep loudly because he desperately wants to see God make all things right. And then this happens, verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. That's the story of the world in a nutshell. God has his purposes in the world. Human beings have messed it up. No one can open the scroll, and there is only one who can make it right. And the Bible is the story of how he does that. Last week, Tracy and I uh, took our kids to see Toy Story 4. So there we are, Toy Story 4, right over here at, at Glendale Cinema. We had our Toy Story Pez dispensers. We had the 55-gallon drum of popcorn. So there's my wife, Tracy, my son, Josiah, my daughter, Marilyn, uh, my son, Owen. I'm the big hairy guy in the black shirt, in case you're, you're wondering. Uh, and we go in, and we watch, we watch Toy Story 4. And like many of the Toy Story movies, what happens is uh, you're picking up all these threads from these previous movies, and you're starting to bring them together. And I'm not going to give away the ending to you, but, but, but they start to pull all these threads, and they start to bring the story together. It's kind of what's happening here in Revelation chapter 5. What John is doing at the end of the story is he is bringing together all these threads, all these themes from all throughout the Bible. And so what I want to do today is I want to actually go back and I want to look at the story. I want to look at the true story of the world. I'm going to do a flyover and then I want to come back to Revelation chapter 5 and I want to ask what in the world does this mean for us today? So basically I'm going to teach through the whole Bible this morning. Um, in the midst of no air conditioning. Uh, so if you have a Snickers bar, break that out right now. Uh, we're going to just be skipping rocks today, I promise you that. 
We're going to leave out major sections and major concepts. And I would just say this. Everything we talk about today, in some ways, it is going to be reductionistic because the Bible is such a rich tapestry. You can spend your entire life studying the scriptures and you will barely even scratch the surface. And so my goal today is simply to give you kind of a skeleton sketch, kind of a framework, so that when you're studying Habakkuk on your own, you can kind of understand what's going on in this story. So uh, before we do that, a few resources to, to help you understand the story of the Bible. The first is this, our spiritual formation page on our website. Uh, we've got podcasts, we've got practice guides, we've got blog posts, we've got a spiritual formation plan, and so, so check those out. Uh, a few other books that I have found personally really helpful. Uh, the first is one called God's Big Picture, Tracing the Storyline of the Bible. It's by a, a pastor in London. His name is Vaughn Roberts. Um, probably the best simple introduction to the scriptures, to the, over, to the overview of the scriptures that I have found. Uh, the second is the ESV Study Bible. Many of you guys have this, but it does a great job of when you're studying through a passage, locating you within the history of what God's doing in the world. Uh, the third is uh, the Bible Project. I know some of you guys are familiar with this. Um, they've got a website, they have a podcast, they've got YouTube videos. It's really great for you. It's also great if you're trying to teach the overview of the scriptures to your kids. They have fantastic resources. Uh, and then the last is the Jesus Storybook Bible. So again, some of you guys are familiar with this. Um, I've got to be honest, sometimes people ask me, do you have like one commentary on the scriptures that can help me understand the whole Bible? Like regardless of your age, that's what I tell people. Like it is so good. It is so well done and it brings it all together. And so highly commend it to you. Whether you have kids or not, highly commend it to you. Um, last thing I'm going to say is we are going to fly over the next 20 to 25 minutes. So this is going to kind of be like drink it from the fire hose. Um, don't let it freak you out. We're actually going to post all of these slides on our website so you can go back and you can access them if you miss something. All right, let's jump in. Story of God, the story of us, the story of the world. Start at the beginning, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the sovereign king of creation who is working out and establishing his plan for creation. And how does he create? Genesis 1.3. He creates by speaking. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God speaks, and worlds are created. God speaks, and galaxies spring into existence. Friends, that's why we need the word of God. Because the word of God is what gives us life. And the word of God is what gives life to the world. God creates by speaking. And then God brings us to the climax of his creation. Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. He speaks and he creates men and women. And he says, human beings are my images in the world. They reflect me. They represent me. That's what it means to be human, to be in the image of God, to reflect and to represent and to relate to God. And he says, human beings, here's your purpose in the world. I want you to rule as kings and queens on the earth. I want you to fill the earth with images who reflect my image. I want you to cultivate and care for the creation that I've given you. 
And if you read the first two chapters of Genesis, it presents the Garden of Eden as a temple where God's presence dwells. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, I don't have time to get into all the symbolism of what's going on here. But in the ancient world, these two words, work and keep, this is the language that the ancient world used for what priests did. So what God is saying in Genesis 1 and 2 is he's saying, human beings, I have created you to be kings and priests, to be a kingdom of priests on the earth. Keep that phrase in mind, kingdom of priests, because it's going to show up over and over and over again throughout this story. God says, I've created men and women to reflect me and to represent me and to relate to me. The goal of creation The purpose of the universe is to be a theater that displays the glory of God as it is filled with human beings who reflect the image of God. The entire world was created to be a temple where God would dwell with his people. But there's a problem. Because when you get to Genesis 3, you see human beings were not content to be kings and queens under the authority of God. We wanted to be the authority. We wanted to call the shots. We wanted to be God. That's what the whole temptation in Genesis 3 is all about. The serpent, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, all these things. Here's what it's about. It's about how human beings decided that we knew better than God. We stopped trusting that God loves us. We stopped trusting that God wants what is best for us. We decided to seek happiness and purpose and meaning and blessing our own way instead of God's way, and it ruined everything. It ruined our relationship with God. It ruined our relationship with each other. It ruined our relationship with the world around us. Adam and Eve could not open the scroll. Adam and Eve could not bring God's purposes to pass for humanity and for the world. The good news is that that's not the end of the story. God doesn't leave humanity in the mess that we've created for ourselves. He says, I'm going to send a deliverer who's going to set you free and who's going to make all things new. Genesis 3.15, God is speaking to the serpent. He is speaking to the enemy of humanity and of God. And he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And the rest of the story of the scriptures, the rest of the story of the world is God sending a deliverer who is going to do that. And here's the thing, person after person after person tries to be that deliverer. Genesis chapter 4, Eve thinks that her son Cain is going to be the deliverer, but Cain ends up killing his brother. Genesis chapter 6, we think maybe Noah is going to be the deliverer, but Noah ends up passed out in a drunken stupor. Genesis chapter 11, the people of the earth all get together and they say, we're going to build a tower up to heaven and we're going to make a name for ourselves and we're going to climb up to the heavens. But over and over and over again, things fall apart and the best attempts of human beings only make things worse. Then God calls a man named Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless the entire world through your descendants. Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 1, what happens? God blesses humanity. God says, I'm going to do that again. I am going to restore humanity to the purpose for which it's been created, and I'm going to do it through this family. 
I'm going to do it through the, the descendants of Abraham. But then we run into another problem. Because then you keep reading the book of Genesis and you read about Abraham and you, you read about his family and you realize they are anything but a blessing. They are liars and cheaters and misogynists and murderers and they act like terrorists at times. Abraham and his descendants are not worthy to open the scroll. And you get to the book of Exodus, which we're studying right now, and they're as slaves in Egypt. They can't even save themselves, let alone save the world. But once again, God refuses to give up. And he raises up a man named Moses, and Moses brings the people out of Egypt, and he, call, he brings them to this mountain called Mount Sinai. And look what he says, Exodus 19. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me, look at this phrase, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's that phrase again, kingdom of priests, what God originally created humanity to be. And he says, I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to make you a people who recover my vision for humanity, who show the world what it means to be truly and fully human, who show the world, who reflect to the world who I am and who I've created human beings to be. And I will be with you, he says. I will dwell among you. Exodus 6, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's why in a, in a, few, in a few weeks when we get back into Exodus, we're going to be studying about the tabernacle. The tabernacle is this tent where God would manifest his presence, where God would meet, where the people of, of Israel would come to worship God. And if you pay attention to the instructions for the tabernacle in Exodus 25 through 40, what you find is that the tabernacle is like a mini Garden of Eden. It's like a mini cosmos. God created the entire world to be a temple for his glory. But now sin has invaded the world, has separated people from his presence, and now God is invading again. God is taking back his world. God is going to dwell with his people again. And in the Old Testament, what he does is he shows himself and he meets with his people in this tent called the tabernacle. It seems great, but here's the thing. The paint on the tabernacle is barely dry before we run into a new problem. Because there are all these priests who are supposed to lead worship in, in the tabernacle. And what you find out is that the priests are utterly corrupt. They start using religion as a personal power trip. Hard to imagine, right? They start using religion as a personal power trip. They start dipping into the offering plate. Instead of, instead of demonstrating the glory of God, they're trying to live for their own glory. Instead of serving God and serving the people, they use God and they use the people for their own selfish purposes. The priests are not worthy to open the scroll. And the people of Israel begin to grumble and they turn their back on God and they follow false gods. God has brought his people out of Egypt, but Egypt is still in the people. And even Moses can't enter the promised land. Even Moses cannot give his people rest. Even Moses is not worthy in the terms of Revelation 5 to open the scroll. And over the next 400 years, God sends deliverer after deliverer after deliverer to his people. He sends a guy named Joshua, sends a guy named Gideon, sends a guy named Samson. Time and time and time again, God rescues his people, and time and time and time again, you see these leaders failing and falling, and none of them are worthy to open the scroll. And then eventually you get to the, to the biggest figure, the most important figure in the entire Old Testament. You get to King David. 
David's name shows up more than twice as many times as anyone else's name in the Old Testament. Because God says, I'm going to reestablish my kingdom through King David and through his descendants. So 2 Samuel 7, God speaking to David says this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. You see what God's saying? God is saying, David, I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to adopt you, David. David, I'm going to build a dynasty for you. I'm going to make your name great, and your son will build a house for my name. Your son will build a temple where the entire world will come to worship me. And David's son Solomon builds this temple in Jerusalem. And there's this beautiful, breathtaking promise in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2. It says, It shall come to pass in the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. I love this. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. God says one day, people from all over the world will come to worship me. And they will experience my presence. And I will rule. They will be part of my kingdom. And when that happens, oppression and injustice and hostility and war will be no more. God is working out his plan to bring blessing to the world through David and through the kings who come from the house of David. But there's another problem. Because if you read the book of Kings, you read the book of Chronicles, you read the prophets, these kings are awful. Like there are a few exceptions, but by and large, they are dirty, despicable human beings. God calls the king to establish justice for the poor. But these kings oppress the poor. God calls the king to lead his people in worship of the one true God. But these kings actually lead the people to worship false gods. They, they go so far as they actually lead the people to sacrifice their own children to false gods. David's not worthy to open the scroll. His descendants are not worthy to open the scroll. And so in 586 B.C., God sends his people into exile. The Babylonians come in, they invade Jerusalem, they destroy the temple, the glory of the Lord, God's manifest presence in the temple departs, the people are deported to Babylon, and now they have lost what makes them distinct. They've lost the kingdom that God has set up. They have lost the temple where God's presence dwells. And it looks like the hope of God's people, it looks like the hope of the world is lost. But once again, God refuses to give up. Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them 
and I will write it on their hearts. And I, this is that phrase again, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God says, I will not let your sin and your rebellion and your self-destructive idolatry have the final word. I will bring you back to myself. I will not give up on my promise. I will forgive your sin. I will be your God, and you will be my people. This amazing, breathtaking promise of the pursuing, unconditional, unstoppable, and Sally Lloyd-Jones from the Jesus Storybook Bible, never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. God coming after his people, refusing to give up on us. And they hear this promise, and they wait. They wait. For hundreds of years, they wait. Eventually, they go back to their homeland. They settle, but there's still something missing. They're still waiting for the king to return. They're still waiting for the presence and the glory of God to fill the temple. 500 years later, this happens. John 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, the word by which all things were created. The word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. He says, the true son has come. The king has come. God himself has stepped into the story. God himself has taken on flesh and dwelt among us. No one else could rescue humanity. No one else could redeem God's world. No one else was worthy to open the scroll. So God himself stepped in. God himself does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And it wasn't plan B. It's not like it took God by surprise all throughout the Old Testament. This is what you're supposed to learn all throughout the Old Testament. Second chance after third chance after fourth chance after hundredth chance. And we keep messing it up. That's the whole point. We need God to step in. Listen to what Jesus says, Luke 24. Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ, it is written, Old Testament, it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus says that's what the story is all about. The whole story of the Bible, the whole story of the world, it's about me. It's about how you can't do what I've created you to do. You can't be now what I've created you to be and how I'm going to give my life for the life of the world. And now you, as the recipients of that forgiveness, are going to carry that forgiveness to the ends of the world. And he sends them out. Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
I have all authority. I'm the king, and now I send you out as heralds of my kingdom to announce my kingdom to the entire world, and I am with you. I am with you always. I am your God. You are my people. John 20, I love this. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Genesis chapter 2, how does God create? He breathes into Adam the breath of life. How does Jesus bring a new creation? How does Jesus recreate humanity? He breathes his spirit into us. That's what God is doing in the world. He is recreating human beings to be what he originally created us to be. He is doing it by the power of his spirit that he breathes into us. And just as God promised, this isn't just going to be for one isolated group of people. This is from people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Ephesians 2, we talk about this all the time around here. You are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints. You are members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into what? Grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You are a dwelling for God's spirit. Jews and Gentiles, people from every conceivable background, people who were once divided by deep hostility, now a temple in Christ, a temple where the presence of God is, 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 is living. The unified people from every ethnic background all across the globe who display and declare God's vision for humanity. 1 Peter 2, you are a chosen race. Here's that phrase again, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's who we are. That is our calling and our privilege as the people of God to be the kingdom of priests that he created us to be, to be people who reflect the character of God, to be people who display to the world who God is and what it means to be truly and fully human and who welcome other people into the family that he is building. And one day, it'll be complete. One day, Jesus will finish what he started. One day, we will join with that multitude that we read about in Revelation 5 of every tribe and tongue and nation and sing, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. God promises, when I do that, I will make all things new. When I do that, everything sad will come untrue. Revelation 21, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I am making all things new. Listen, friends, the world is full of people who will tell you that they can do that. The world is full of people who will tell you that they can open the scroll, 
The world is full of people who will tell you that they can give you the life that you've been created for, who will tell you that they can make you and they can make the world what it was created to be. Our politicians tell us that they will do that for the price of our vote. Our corporations tell us that they will do that for the price of this product. Our religious teachers and our self-help gurus tell us that they will do this for the price of our allegiance. Our career tracks tell us that they will do that for the price of our worship. But there is only one who can open the scroll. There is only one who can make you what you were created to be and who can make the world what it was created to be, and he has done it at the price of his own blood. So I want to close by asking you that question from Revelation 5. Is he worthy? Is Jesus worthy? Is Jesus worthy of your trust in your marriage, in your singleness, in your finances, in your career, in your friendships, in your sexuality? Is Jesus worthy of your trust? Is Jesus worthy of your obedience? He's shown us what the truly human life looks like. A life of service and holiness and love and forgiveness and downward mobility. Is he worthy of your obedience? Is he worthy of your words? God has entrusted this good news to us. Are we willing to open our mouths and to share it with other people? Is he worthy of us taking this good news to our neighborhoods and our networks and the nations? Is he worthy of us pouring out our lives to see him worshiped by every tribe and language and people and nation? Is he worthy of our words? Is he worthy of your worship? In the midst of a broken world, in the midst of the darkness and the pain and the brokenness of life, does this make your heart burn? Does it make your heart burn? Do you want this? Do you desire this? Like, i got to be honest with you. There have been times in my life when this is all I can put my hope in. When all that keeps me going is the fact that Jesus is worthy and that one day he will make all things new. That is what has carried me through the darkest times of my life and that is still what carries me today. He is worthy. He's worthy. So as we move to communion, I want you to just be honest with yourself and ask yourself that question. Do you believe that he is worthy? And don't just give the nice, churchy, sanitized answer. Be honest. Is he worthy of my trust and my obedience and my words and my worship? And take a moment and be honest with him about the places where you're not living as if he's worthy. Confess those to him. Be honest with him. Receive his forgiveness. Look, he bought forgiveness for you at the price of his own blood. And so if you're trusting in that, then come and take the Lord's Supper. The way that we do that, as you guys know, if you've been here, we have stations at the front, stations at the back. Simply come down the aisle, tear off a piece of the bread, and dip it in the cup and take it and return to our seats. Maybe you're here, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, and we just invite you to use this time just to be honest with yourself. Don't just come and, and do some perfunctory religious ritual. But as I said, ask the questions. Do I believe in this Jesus? Do I believe in these scriptures? What are the questions? What are the objections that I have? What are the doubts that I have? And how am I going to be exploring those things? And so if you've got questions about that, we'd love to speak with you after the service. Let's pray. Let's take the Lord's Supper.